So that started our medical error journey. We couldn't get diagnosis made until the injuries were so grave that other functional areas were affected because reports of chronic pain weren't enough. He was a kid, kids don't have pain. So that was, that was pretty disturbing. He ended up in emergency surgery uh, with a spine fusion at the age of 15. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Dr. Terry Lewis is a clinical educator with more than 30 years of experience in the development and administration of community rehabilitation and counseling programs. Terry's insights into the machinations of the medical system come from both her professional career and her role as a mother. When Terry's child experienced pain, it was by and large dismissed by doctors. By ignoring what Terry's son was reporting, doctors contributed to a worse and more painful and needless outcome for him. In our interview, Terry shares both the formal and personal aspects of her experiences with the healthcare system. A medical system that is not focused on the patient as they purport, but focused on cutting patient-doctor appointment times and decreasing other costs while maximizing profits. A system Terry aptly describes as drive-by medicine. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And now here's my interview with Terry Lewis, PhD, and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Terry's experiences with the healthcare system. Thanks, Terry. So tell me, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in the state of Montana and uh, in a small town between Helen and Butte on the Continental Divide. So my childhood was pretty wandering through the hills and mountainsides, very rural economy. Uh, My parents uh, were divorced when I was about five. So I uh, my mother was uh, mentally ill, schizophrenia, just early diagnosis, was ultimately institutionalized. So that's always been a factor in my um, development as a counselor. A lot of, a lot of um, stress and economic insufficiency associated with that community. Very Catholic community, so... Lots of um, big families and uh, living at the poverty line. Um, my dad was the local Mr. Fix-It. 
he was a repairman and he was the guy you called when you needed your TV or your washing machine or anything fixed. And he also had a back problem that we fully understand now, but we didn't understand then. Uh, it was identified about um, the age of 19 and it washed him out of the Korean War. So he's a veteran when it was identified and he had several surgeries throughout his adulthood to deal with it. And he died, he had chronic pain his whole life. And he died at 56. Oh. So it, it sounds like when your mom was hospitalized that you went to live with your dad and do you have any siblings? Yes, I have a, a brother and sister from this first family. And then many, many years later into my adulthood, my father remarried and he had two more children. So there's about a 25 year span there. Between two, two, two litters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it sounds like even though you had a very challenging familial and sort of social community life, that you somehow managed to make it to college and university. I did, yeah. I uh, started out as an art major. And uh, my graduating class in high school had 18 people. And um, art was something that was always kind of a refuge for me. Uh, I come from a family of crafty people. And several of them are very, very artistic either cabinet makers or builders, artists, and so forth. So uh, that's kind of carried through. Uh, my daughter is, was an art major. So I started out as an art major. It was the Vietnam War. And so it was an interesting time to be an art major. And pretty quickly, I learned that I really didn't like it when it became a job um, because it was a refuge for me. And when it became a job, it um, lost its flavor. So, so I'm, I, I stopped out for a time and eventually came back to higher education after I got married and finished up an, an education degree and then a master's degree in severe disabilities and multi-handicaps. And then ultimately, many years later, a PhD in rehabilitation. Okay. And so today we're going to talk about your family's experience uh, with medical error. So take us on that journey. When did, when did it start? I have a son who inherited my uh, dad's back. You know, I'm, I'm a rehabilitation person, so I'm pretty well informed. But I also understand that um, the healthcare system has a learning curve. And that as the system has changed over the years uh, and procedures and payment models have changed, it has a great influence on how healthcare is delivered. In my son's case, he started having uh, problems about the age of 10 or 12 that were musculoskeletal. And he, um, uh, it wasn't recognized. I didn't recognize what it was. Um, his pediatrician didn't recognize it for what it was. By the time he was like seventh grade, we had identified Osgood Schlatter disorder which is, you know, particularly kids who are growing fast, often boys, the ligaments to their knees become very strained and you get a lot of bony overgrowth and it gets a lot of inflammation and it really sets up a very systemic problem. Sounds painful. It's very painful. You know, he, he had it to such a degree that um, he, he couldn't climb stairs in the school building. He had to use the elevator. 
you know, all these things that seventh grade kids just would rather die than do. Okay, so it wasn't real easy, but he grew nine inches in that period. So at that point, lots of other things became evident. And so our journey with medical error, insofar as he's concerned, is uh, one of failure of diagnostics. Failure to understand that kids have pain. It's not growing pains. Failure to understand that kids have injuries that can result in chronic pain. And he developed a broken PARS defect, um, which is related to the vertebra at, at where it joins the sacrum. You have these little prongs that come out of your vertebra on the posterior side and they grab the one underneath it. Well, in some people, your bones grow uh, slower than your muscles do. So in his case, well, no, they grow faster than your muscles do. So in, in this case, his prongs there broke that injury was there for almost a year before we got it identified, but we didn't get it identified until he was very gravely injured and he was losing function in other areas. So that started our medical error journey. We couldn't get diagnosis made until the injuries were so grave that other functional areas were affected because reports of chronic pain weren't enough. He was a kid. Kids don't have pain. It's growing pains. So that was, that was pretty disturbing. He ended up in emergency surgery uh, with a spine fusion at the age of 15, and he had grave spinal injuries uh, that he developed over that period of time. Must have been very frightening for him. Frightening for all of us. Yeah, for sure. This, and he had his first surgery. We, we were living in Tennessee. He had his first surgery at Vanderbilt. He had a good surgeon, but the surgery was not successful. He developed something called failed back syndrome. And failed back syndrome is essentially a constellation of problems that develop as a result of certain features of injury that affect the spinal canal and spinal cord. And at that point, he developed um, something called arachnoiditis, which is a chronic pain inflammatory problem inside the spinal cord. It causes scarring. It occurs when bacteria or blood or viruses enter the um, CSF, and it sets off an inflammatory response, and your body responds by trying to encapsulate it and creating scar tissue. So that, at that point, that was not understood. It wasn't well understood. Nobody looked for it. And uh, getting it diagnosed took three major surgeries, and him entering adulthood before people would register his complaints of pain, his, his symptoms associated with pain. So inability to hear the patient is a pretty big issue. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in that area particular when it comes to the inability of a patient to really articulate what their experience is because they lack the maturity or stigma, so they don't want to disclose, or gender issues, or um, just all of the things that go with disclosure, I think are pretty, pretty big issues. So in retrospect of the three surgeries he had, how many should he have had? He should have had none. <laughs> but if he, if he had been heard initially, 
we may have been able to intercept and prevent what happened, but for sure he shouldn't have had more than one. However, once you start down the road of spine fusions, um, it's very likely you're going to have multiple surgeries. He's now on surgery number four, looking at number five. And how is he doing? Um, no day is a picnic. Mm. It's difficult, really difficult. It's been very interrupting. And how's he doing emotionally? Very interrupting. Uh, this happened when he was young. So his chief complaint is that starting his life has yeah. been a real challenge. Yeah. He's getting interrupted by continuous re-injury. Oh, that's got to be incredibly frustrating. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. And, and you know, I mean, we're both in this business where we hear this, but I'm not sure that we process what we hear or that the system in which we're working lets us properly address what we're hearing in terms of uh, triangulating information and looking at things like from a systems perspective. And I, I think that that one of my concerns right now for patient harm is that our systems are so siloed and so narrow that it prevents effective communication. We don't always ask the right questions and we don't share information. And we put the person who is trapped in that system into a position of having to move from one specialist to another reporting symptoms maybe over and over again and being forced to parse or choose what they report because the person they're reporting to, that's not their job. They don't do X. They don't feel a, an obligation to help that person put it all together because, you know, it's weird increasingly seeing acute medicine and drive-by medicine and overly specialized medicine. And, and we're not using all of our resources. We're not using uh, the people around us who can help us to put this story together for people. I think that's um, quite a problem. So it sounds like you touched on two major themes there. One is the the way the system is designed very much that siloing and so that information is not getting passed between providers. Mm -hmm. And then there also seems to be this uh, more of a cultural thing where kids don't have pain, where it's dismissed, ignored, not listened to. Uh, and I heard some of the potential answers for fixing the siloing. How do you think we can address that cultural aspect? I think medical education is a big piece of this. I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on this issue with hundreds of families annually. Uh, I've been doing a survey, national survey that I've, I've been analyzing nearly 5,000 reports of the experience that people are having in the opioid wars. And I think that I'm coming down on the side of, we have a system that is tilted toward acute care. And that system fits the culture of billable hours and payment. It is not a system that addresses the culture and the system in which people live and develop and progress through their lifespan. And because it is so tilted toward the acute 15 minute care experience, it can't derive informatics from what happened before or and it can't project what might, what the possibilities are for future. 
because it's working off of data that is time limited, very, very small pieces of what represents that patient's experience. And it's more likely to be tilted toward what the person can get paid for. And the hospital system is going to be paid for the trans, it's very transactional. And because it's so transactional, it, it, uh, we're missing the forest for the trees. Uh, and I, I think that that's a problem that's getting much bigger, especially over the last 20 years as, for instance, the general practitioner or the family medicine person, you know, knew everybody in the family. They were your doctor for 20 years. They knew your mama, they knew your, your grandbabies, they knew your cousins, they knew that social context, and we're losing that. We, that's gone. Uh, in much of America, that's gone. The payment systems don't favor that. Medical education does not favor that. We're over-recruiting for specialties. And, and so in a drive-by system, if the context doesn't matter, then uh, we, we, we lose the opportunity to tease out what's really important. Our, our, our attention is deflected on the wrong indicators. And I do a lot of work on, on, on looking at these issues. So uh, we've built a system to favor that. And I think that's true in Canada also because I, I work with a lot of Canadian folks. We just, we have stripped the context away that has a lot of explanatory information about why people are sitting in front of us in the counseling chair or the, um, you know, the doctor's office. So you make a very compelling case for shaking up the whole medical industry and how would you like to see how it shakes out? How would you set it up so it's not transactional in a monetary sense? I would put uh, family practice and GPs at the top of the heap. I think they are the gatekeepers and I think they need a team. Uh, they need a matrix team and that team doesn't have to be sitting in their office, but they need partners in their community. The context of community is essential to this conversation. I do a lot of rural work. I love rural work. Nobody likes to do it. I love it because it, it is so underserved, but it's also uh, so um, deficient in resources. So you have to reach beyond the person in the office to the community to understand that community context. From a systems perspective, that's very important. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting in a rural physician office or an urban office, that systems approach and systems medicine is, is critical. Um, what we're doing, in my estimation, is that we're very focused on pieces and parts and ICD-10 codes without any understanding that the head bone is connected to the toe bone and everything in between. And, and so, I mean, I can't tell you how many people over and over again are forced to choose what they want to deal with in their 15 minutes in the doctor's office. And forget everything else, okay? I think that leads to grave opportunity for harm. And I would like to see us utilize much more of a systems approach to medicine because, you know, we are complex systems. Uh, the human body is complex. You can't separate the brain from the body. I think it's, I think, I think we're headed in the wrong direction. I'd really like to see us matrixed and I'd like to see family medicine and general practice not only operate at the top of that heap with a team, but also within a medical home model, because I think that's really important that refits 
that community context back into the practice of medicine. So practice of medicine is not um, exclusive and siloed and parsed away from the function of the community, but it's reflective of that community system. And it's using community partners. And it understands the interactions between your patients, your clients, and the context in which they're living. If we did that, then we have much more of an opportunity to be very longitudinal in our approaches instead of operating off the acute care model. Um, we, have, we are more informed by human development and the economic and social life of the community and the social patterns and how our people interact with those or don't than, uh, than the model in which we're working now. So is this called a community-based health model? Well, you can call it any number of things. Um, in the US, we, we, we call it a number of things, but I, I like the ICF model. I like the, um, ICF. the ICF, it's the international, it's the international model, it's very culture fair. And it comes out of the, it's, part, it's a part of the ICD-10 rollout, but it is the social and contextual piece. And it looks at how, it's very systems oriented, and it looks at how humans interact with their environment across their lifespan. So it's very community fair, it's culture fair, it can be implemented everywhere. I teach in Taiwan nine months of the year, and uh, I teach healthcare providers in Taiwan, and I teach also in the US. I teach counseling folks who are likely to work anywhere. Uh, so I like this model, it's quite different than what we have on the table in the U.S., but um, which the, the, we're using the, primarily the medical model in the U.S. or the expert model, but um, I don't find them really useful for what I do. So uh, the ICF model works pretty well. And for folks who aren't familiar with the term or the acronym ICD, what does that stand for? International Classification of Disease. And that's put out by the World Health Organization. Right. And all of our systems are built on that classification around the world to some degree. And it's treaty driven. So uh, everybody has the system installed, but they don't have all of the systems pieces installed, and they may not all use it in the same way, but it is a taxonomy that has clear definitions based on 20, 20 subsets of information that are based on human systems and also contextual factors for the transactions. It's our billing systems in the U.S. are built on that model. And I work a lot with physicians. I'm having a lot of conversation with physicians about their use of that model because I see that many errors enter their work in, because they don't get the full use of the system in which they are operating. So I spent some time on that issue, but um, generally, if we use the whole package, uh, I think we'd have a lot better result. So it's, I'm gathering there's two points of potential errors. There's the errors where the doctors aren't getting full access to the ICD. And then there's also just sort of the human errors of uh, administration, typos, that sort of thing. And I have... Biases. We, have, we, we operate off of heuristics and biases that um, are very very efficient and if we don't know they're there we don't 
set them aside. So in our over-specialization, bias is a really big issue because it's desirable. We don't incorporate a lot of information from areas outside our specialty because that's not what we're there to do. So bias can be good or bad. I have a number of clients who have had in their uh, medical record put down a psychological diagnosis when they actually had a physical problem. Uh, and that error or bias follows their healthcare treatment forward and often impedes getting actual biomedical care. And often they get treated with psychoactive medications for mental health illnesses they do not have. That's right. Completely. Happens all the time. Happens every day. In fact, in my son's case, that happened. Um, kids don't have pain. So it must be a mental health problem. He must be emotionally disturbed. So let's load him up with drugs. See if we can't kick back that emotional disturbance and hope that his complaints go away. Nope. <laughs> Didn't happen. It also impeded diagnosis for a long time. So given your in-depth knowledge of how the healthcare systems work, how did that practical knowledge intersect with you being a mom? It's awful. I, I can't tell you, it's awful. Uh, you, you, first of all, I know too much, but the system in which we work views me as the parent, and the parent isn't supposed to know very much, okay? Because that's not how the system is built. You've got the expert model in place, and the expert in the room is the clinician, okay? So unless you have a long-term relationship with that clinician, you, it doesn't matter who you are, you don't get heard. And I've been in that position a lot. I am more likely to be in that position on behalf of my family than I am uh, if I'm sitting as a patient advocate with a, with a person who I don't know very well, but I know the record. So that is, that is, a, that is a cultural issue. It's a resourcing issue. It's a learning issue for clinicians. It's, it's a problem of med ed, and we need to do better. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my, my, my PhD means nothing in some situations uh, until they get to know me. But even then, it can be pretty threatening. You know, I'm the doctor, you're not. So it, it takes, it, it's a dance. We've all done that dance. We all need to learn to do better. I think this is a really big issue. And I, 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 as I watch this dance, I am really attracted to the notion that this is an area of communication that we should be breaking barriers down. In. Um, I really like science communication, and I really like the notion of developing and exploring that patient-clinician exchange, which is so transactional, and working it over to the point that the physician and the patient can get on the same level of conversation. Absolutely. And, and that's really hard to do in an acute system with the 15-minute drive-by appointment. Uh, they're just really difficult. And but more importantly, creating the awareness. I think a lot of physicians at the end of the day are exhausted by communications that fail. 
I really believe that. They, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. They don't know why these communications are failing. They know it increases their error rate. And they may just not know how to come across the bridge and deal with this person who is clearly in distress. They, they, just, they just don't know how to get to that nut cutting um, quickly. For a profession that is so dependent on interpersonal relationships and that communication, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that in the education of physicians. No. Part of the problem with that for me is the way medical education is framed. It's hospital-based. So, and so much of med ed residency and the opportunity to learn that communication occurs in the hospital where everything is a crisis and everything is acute as opposed to community clinics. There's no residency constructed around primary care in the community clinic. So where do you get to learn how to do that? That's a great point. Yeah. It's a very it's a very serious issue. When you were talking about the the drive-by doctors appointments that we have in Ontario and Ontario is the largest province in Canada, the most populated, the way they've set up the billing system if a patient has a complex illness that requires more than 15 minutes, that requires 30 or 45 minutes, the doctors are disincentivized to have those meetings because they will, their fee is less for those folks. So why see somebody for one person for 45 minutes when you can see three for 45 minutes and make more money? Well, we have the same issues here in the US. Uh, chronic, I spent, this is a favorite topic of mine because I believe we are carving out and creating very sick people because our models are wrong. And uh, the way we feed people into the system, the way we deliver healthcare, and the way we measure outcomes, which we don't measure outcomes, we don't, that people are getting more and more chronically ill. And then we wonder why, you know? So uh, there, there's, there's this, in the US recently, they've created some, the American Medical Association has created some chronic care codes. And those codes will allow people with two or more complex diagnoses, the, the physicians who care for them will receive a higher reimbursement rate for at least one, uh, one appointment per month. And they, they have to adjust their treatment planning and it has to meet certain characteristics in order to do that. But we have a long, long way to go, a long way to go. And, and, and rolling it out, many physicians even today are, are completely unfamiliar with how to do that, how to, how to interact with that. So that's an area where I spend some time on physician communication and patient communication, especially in the opioid wars battle that we're all so caught up in because as our resources become more narrow, we find that we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole repeatedly Everybody gets treated the same way, even though everybody is unique and different. Uh, that's a system issue, and it's creating bloody hell with uh, outcomes, and it's creating a real drain on the system. And I know this is going on in Canada, too, because I have colleagues in Canada who are working on the same issues as patient advocates. And they see the same thing there. It may be a little bit differently constructed systemically, but it's still the same outcome. Yeah, yeah. We're not that much different in terms of medical culture and education. I think yeah. that the billing is 
different in that uh, our government is supposed to have give us universal access to healthcare, but it, it's not universal. I pay for a lot of my medications out of my own pocket because the medications I need uh, are off label, and if they're off label, they're not covered by the formulary. So another area of improvement. Um, before we started, you were telling me that recently you've been working on mold from a compounding pharmacy. Tell me that whole story again, because that was very interesting, the sleuthing that went on to find out what was going on. Well, this um, is unfortunately not a new problem, but it's a problem that reflects many system errors. As we've gotten more alert to problems associated with prescription opioids and street synthetic opioids, the healthcare system, at least on this, and I think this is true in Canada too, has moved toward interventional medicine models. The problem with that is that it relies on pumps, stimulators, injections, and so forth. Instead of doing root cause analysis and rehabilitation and preventive care, uh, where it's again that acute drive-by model. So the number of epidural injections in this country, and I know it's true in Canada, it's gone up through the ceiling. It's ridiculous. It's over 9 million a year. But are epidurals just for uh, pregnancy during birth? Uh -oh. No. Oh. They're also used for all kinds of low back pain complaints. More and more, they're being overused for complaints of sciatica and leg pain and, you know, muscle poles and so forth, they're way overused. And uh, with that, pharmacy industry has, um, they're not regulated by FDA. So they're an off-label application. And the medication that gets used for those interventions is off-label, it's unregulated. Uh, as a result of that, a lot of the injury that is associated with these tools, these interventions, goes unnoticed, undetected in the system because it's unreportable. It's not regulated by FDA, therefore it's not reported to FDA. So there's this quiet, dark underbelly of compounding that's developed to support this because it's off-label. And these uh, mom-and-pop manufacturers are putting out lots and lots and lots of medications that are unregulated. They're knockoffs, they're copies, whatever. But the circumstances of their production are quite variable. Often they're non-sterile. So a firm in Massachusetts uh, developed a large compounding pharmacy where they started pumping out large quantities of these medications for use by the interventional management practitioners in this country. And their cost was very low, so they were selling a lot of materials. And in a period of time in 2012, they had an infestation that they were not managing in their production processes. So they produced thousands of pounds of material that were in fact contaminated by bacteria, molds, and viruses because of the environmental conditions in which they were operating, including being next to a junkyard where there was wood all, all piled up and uh, pigeons flying into their building and roosting in the rafters uh, of their production room. So people started to get sick. They sold material into 22 states. 
they sold something like 2,600 line items of uh, methylprednisolone steroids, methylprednisolone, betazone, and cardioplegia solution, and topicals. And all of these were contaminated. The, the problem, they sold it into hospitals where the hospitals then redistributed it through their clinic systems. So it, it was spread into 22 states and 75 clinics got this contaminated material. About 2,600 line items of different signs of packaging and, and so forth. So people go to their clinicians for interventional procedures, including epidurals, trigger point injections, intramuscular injections, eye injections, Avastin. They started to get sick. And they started to get sick with something that looked like meningitis. Uh, the first case that was detected was a judge out of Kentucky who died and they thought he had a stroke. But pretty quick, quickly it became clear that he was simply an undetected member of this exposure class. CDC got involved because it was reported from Vanderbilt to CDC. And at that point that triggered a nationwide recall of all materials from this compounding pharmacy. The scope was 22 states, 75 clinics, 2,600 line items, 14,000 people who had been exposed. At the point that I got involved was very quickly in early in this, ultimately 800 people were identified and who died they died as a result of fungal meningitis. The, the epidural injections were injected into their CSF. Which is cerebral spinal fluid. Cerebral spinal fluid, usually as part of an epidural or a trigger point injection. It, in, it literally inoculated them with material that included bacteria, viruses, fungi, molds. And I mean, we're talking ugly, ugly stuff. Took harborage in their bodies and that were not responsive to antibiotics and normal course of intervention for meningitis. That's been just a nightmare event. But from that, we also learned that there were other products like that that were also um, uh, they were also generating the same patient experience, like the Avastin that is used for macular degeneration and cataracts in the, and inserted into the eye, into the eye fluid, the, and it's blinded people. So I got involved in the compounding issue as a major medical harm event. And I was just the right person at the right time in the right place because of my rehab background and my medical harm background and the fact that I had already been working on medical harm associated with epidural injections, I knew what we were dealing with. So those who were in the system just kind of stayed out of the way and let me work with the families. And we, we put together a Facebook group for them and for their family members and their attorneys. And then, you know, I just started um, with a couple of my colleagues, we started steering these families toward uh, the right education about what had happened to them um, helping them learn what questions to ask and get answers for, how to better work with their attorneys, their physicians, educate their physicians, and just, you know, keep them alive where we could. So that's, that was quite an experience. It was really quite a traumatizing event. And um, 
we're still dealing with it. I'm still finding patients. In fact, two weeks ago, somebody popped up into my work who was lost to follow up in this whole process. We saw a lot of clinics because of the structure of the litigation that followed. A lot of clinics spoiled patient records. They hid patient records because of their liability. So the detective work that had to be done was confirming what materials people were exposed to, what lots they had received, and we discovered that many medical clinics are completely ill-prepared to track information about the medications they dispense. They don't have that information in their uh, inventories. They don't track outcomes and results. They don't track labels. They don't know where they got their stuff from. It just kind of shows up on their back dock, and that's what they use. So within these clinics and hospitals, the pharmaceutical control systems aren't there. So stock rotation, um, follow-up, it's not there. So, you know, it's a big problem. Wow, that, that's quite frightening. Uh, just while we're on the topic, so if folks were thinking, hey, maybe that's what's going on with my body, um, maybe I've been exposed to mold, viruses, et cetera, from these compounding pharmacy. Uh, you mentioned a Facebook group. Is that how they track you down? Uh, yeah, I have a Facebook group for this fungal meningitis outbreak. If they have been exposed through an injection of some kind of a steroid, then we certainly want to know who they are. Not, not everybody who has these symptoms may have had this same exposure. They may have had another like exposure. So the cleanup is a little bit different because the injury of origin is a little different. Um, but we still have learned enough that we can share that information and, and get them to the help they need. This is a terribly tragic injury. Our healthcare systems nowhere are prepared to deal with medical harm victims. And, and you know that, which is why you're doing this. One of the things that I observe is nobody is tracking sequela of interventions. It's not being tracked. So if people are receiving an intervention of some kind and it goes wrong, there's no emergency instructions. Nobody's prepared to receive that patient. No other physician's going to touch somebody else's problem. And the patient is really left to flounder on their own. And that's a real, really big issue. That's a really big issue. It's very traumatizing. It creates all kinds of secondary and tertiary harms. And none of it's getting dealt with. Um, this week I had somebody who had a, a spinal cord stimulator fail in an MRI. It knocked out the programming. Some of the technician didn't do something right. It knocked out the programming. It opened up the unit, and it was like um, being hooked up to a car battery for 28 days before she could get it surgically removed. 28 days. Wow. Okay? And there's, number one, there's no excuse for that. But number two, when the problem became apparent, there was no remedy. There was no plan. So the patient was left to call the spinal cord stimulator company, and they sent their English major BMW driving representatives to meet this person at a Starbucks 
And they had no clue what to do. They said, well, it can't be our unit. It's got to be you. It's something you've done. You know, so this person is sitting in front of them, vibrating, and being told that she has done something to cause this, when in fact she has not. So that's a really big issue in medical harm. We're not paying attention to not only what we know about what the possibilities are, but this drive-by approach is creating chaos. There is no remedy, there is no mop-up, there is no plan. The whole system is tilted toward hiding the potato. Potato being the problem. Mm -hmm. So we've spent our, our chat here talking about all of the problems with the healthcare system. If we're to end on something hopeful, can you give us something hopeful? Well, I think the hopeful thing is that we know these things are happening and we as advocates need to be far more assertive and really reach across the aisle to inform our colleagues in the community about how we can interact with them to help lower the temperature and to create, create the kind of relationships in a community where the physician or the patient can collaborate in the same space, even if it just means they need some support and they need to learn how to do that. I think that's a real role for advocates. I think we need to be far more assertive. We, we're not doing that very well as somebody who teaches in this area. I think it's a real weakness that we have in pedagogy. We're, we're not using this information to inform our personnel preparation because I stand with a leg on both sides of this issue. I try, to, I try to spend a lot of time on that. Sometimes my graduate students get worn out with it, but, but that's okay. They, they, they will be better. They will be better at what they're doing because we're having this conversation. But yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think that's a hopeful thing we can do. And I think we need to share this space with these colleagues. We need to break these silos down. And in most cases, people are real happy to have that help. You know, we, we, are, all, we are all experts at what we do. I mean, you know, they're not the only ones that they may be getting bigger bucks, but but their stresses are higher also. And um, this is not a good situation for them either. It, it, we're all under assault. Healthcare everywhere is under assault. And, and it's because it's so poorly designed and it's not iterative. It's not responsive. It's under assault. And we need, we need to cross that bridge. Well, perhaps the total global upheaval of the pandemic will be the shakeup of the healthcare system that we need. We can only hope and touch wood that'll happen. If folks wanted to connect with you on social media, because I know we connected on Twitter, how can they find you on social media? And I'll also include those links in the show notes for folks. I am easily found on Twitter. Uh, that seems to be just a great place to make contact with people at TAL7291, TAL7291. And I am easily approached, I'm happy to share my email and, and I can give that to you for your show notes. But I've been, I've been a, you know, I'm, I'm approachable, I'm findable. Um, that I think is the easiest way to do it. I have Facebook pages, I have Facebook groups, but I don't think that's quite as efficient or effective. It tends to get bogged down in other things. So I, I think Twitter is as good a way to find me as any. And, and Twitter is a great way to bring groups of people together around a shared issue. Sometimes it gets really ugly, but sometimes it gets just to be really beautiful. 
Well, thank you, Terry, for sharing your experiences and your wisdom from being so immersed in the whole advocacy and med-ed and all of that stuff. It's been very edifying, not only for me, but I'm sure for the folks who are listening. So thank you. Well, we all have a lot to learn and and we have to be agile. I think, I think that is a really big issue for us right now is that as clinical and patient advocates, we have to be agile. We have to be able to learn as we're responding and respond as we're learning and move from just talking about things to actually turning that into action. That's, that's going to be our job for a while. Well, from your lips to our health leaders' ears, let's hopefully, hopefully that'll, that'll happen for us. Thank you, Terry. Enjoy the rest of your day. It's been enjoyable. Thanks for, uh, thanks for tracking me down. Well, a big thanks to Terry for sharing her experiences and for the work she does in the community to educate clinicians about different aspects of patient care. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast.